Lord, we come to you as we go to this text. It's extremely pointed. It's actually very disturbing. It goes against our culture. It goes against our very fiber. The thought that uh, we are to yield to you 100%. Father, go before us as we look at this text. And may we not walk out of this room the same because of your powerful word. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to Luke 9, verse 57. We've come out of that transfiguration as we just talked about. And this video is depicting what you're going to see here in these few verses. As they were walking along the road, someone said to him, that's Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. <laughs> Great declaration. And Jesus said to him, foxes have dens, the birds in the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus said to another, follow me. This time Jesus approaches the individual and calls for them to follow. But this man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say goodbye to my family. And Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of heaven. There are three obstacles that I see here in this text with each of these individuals. The first of these, and if you're following along in your notes, is the, the fear of abandonment and loneliness. Jesus said, listen, the, the, the animals that we would consider nuisance in that first century world would be foxes and birds. He said, even they who are worthless in nature, have a, they fare far better than Jesus, far better than me. They have a home. And Jesus said, I don't have a home. When you think about it, he was born without a home. <laughs> and that is carried through in his ministry. And you don't hear the response of this follower, but you're assuming after hearing that, he disappears. I'll follow you, but what did you just say? The fear of being isolated. I mean, think about it. What does home mean to you? I looked at Habitat for Humanity. They defined one's home as a place for stability, comfort, security, a place for memories, a refuge, a place that empowers then they had quotes from various individuals that were furnished homes by Habitat for Humanity. Uh, these quotes, home is a base where everything begins. Home gives relief from stresses of unsuitable or dangerous living so a person can focus on what's next, just not what's now. Another person states, home is a safe haven and a comfort zone. When I would give tours overseas, if the, I don't care what the time of the tour is, whether it was 10 days or 12 days, the day before we were to go home, you could see it. It was in their eyes. It's always in their eyes. They've enjoyed their time abroad, but it's ready to go home. <laughs> They've already started checking out. They're, they're packing their suitcase. They're ready to get back to life. Uh, home is home, right? And uh, German, Dechheim is Deheim. This is the place we go. And yet, what is Jesus indicating? 
says, you want to follow me? You're going to forego a place of security, peace, comfort, familiarity, and rest. You want to follow me? You're going to forego a place to call one's own or a place of identity. You want to follow me? It's, you're going to forego a place of community, foregoing a place where I can just be. Stepping out in faith and following Jesus is resulting in a complete dependence on the Lord, isn't it? And yet, he becomes our source, not our home or things of this world for stability, comfort, security, and refuge. I love Psalm 36. It says, How precious is your steadfast love, O Lord. All people take refuge in the shadow of your wings. It's there where we find home. And the idea to this fellow who says, I'll follow you wherever. And Jesus says, well, let me tell you what that's going to entail. And this guy seems to disappear. He's missing the refuge that Jesus provides. Psalm 61, let me abide in your tent forever. Find refuge under the shelter of your wings. Remember Ruth, when she met Boaz for the first time, and Boaz said, ooh, who's that good-looking chick there working in the fields, right? And what does he say to her? He comes up and he says, may the Lord reward you for your deeds. I mean, he's heard. She, she's left everything in Moab to follow Naomi, this bitter bunny. And, and he says, Boaz states to Ruth, and may you have a full reward from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Isn't that great? And Jesus said, you want to follow after me. You're going to have to forego this fear of abandonment, this fear of loneliness. That's the first hurdle that we see here in Luke chapter 9. But Dr. Luke highlights another obstacle that we see here, and that's in Jesus' question to the next fellow, and he says, follow me. And, and this is the only one of the three individuals that we meet that Jesus directly approaches. And we see here, as I mentioned there in your notes, the distractions of life is the second obstacle, isn't it? Notice what he says. He goes, I, I, wanna, I need to go back and, and bury my father, which seems very noble. All right? I mean, burial in the first century among the Jews was very significant. A Jewish writing in the intertestament period said it's the one of the most important responsibilities, especially for a son, that you bury your parents. It's expected. In the Talmud, which is later rabbinic writings, it states, he who is confronted by a dead relative is freed. Now watch this. From reciting the Shema, hero Israel, the Lord is one. You are freed from reciting the 18 benedictions, which is the prayers. And you are free from all the commandments stated in the Torah. Wow. According to rabbinic thought in the first century, if, if mom or papa dies, you can forego all of the religious expectations in order to give attention to this. And so what Jesus is stating goes well beyond the Ten Commandments. It goes well upon the, the cultural expectations. It's harsh. It's fingernails across the blackboard. I mean, everyone's standing there. there. There has to have been a gasp when Jesus said that. What? <laughs> what are you talking about? However, 
I think some context is clear. I think what the man is stating is, he said, when my father dies, I, I think he's waiting for this. In other words, Lord, you know, my dad is old. I want to be there when he passes away. I'll follow you, but I need to take care of these other issues of life. And what Jesus is saying, no, no, the, the present imperative indicates you need to do it now. And if indeed the man was in the midst of funeral arrangements, he would not have been standing there talking to Jesus. He would have been at the tomb. So it seems to indicate what he's saying is, just let me postpone my commitment to you, O Lord, just a few more days or years. And what he's missed is the priority to follow Jesus. Where are you? The call to follow. It's like, well, Lord, I, I, I'll be 100% when I retire. I'll be 100% when I can no longer play golf. I'll be 100% when I'm out of college. That's not what Jesus said. This is an obstacle, the distractions of life. Now, notice what the, Jesus states. He says, let the dead bury their own dead. Well, it's a little hard for dead people to respond, let alone dig a pit for another person or put them in a tomb. What, what's he talking about here? I think he's referring to the spiritually dead. Remember Ephesians 2, you were dead in sin. These are people who, they have no commitment to the Lord. He says, for those, let them deal with the commitments of life. What I've called you to do is be committed to me, to trump all that that might entail. I had the opportunity of working as the admissions rep for Dallas Seminary for a year. And more than once, I would have a young man or a middle-aged man sitting in, in the office, literally crying. I'd love to go to seminary. I feel like God's called me into ministry. But, and here we go, I, you know, my kids are in college or they're in high school. We hate to leave at this time. My, my job, you know, with my dad's business, I'm kind of taking it over. And the list would go on. And they'd just say, it's, I can't right now. <laughs> this is why I strongly urge my pre-seminary students, you need to go straight to seminary. Because life has a way, doesn't it, of, of, of dragging us down or drawing us into the, the cares of this world, whether it be marriage, where, it, you know, I mean, we have this prescribed notion that you have to be married by 32 kids and a dog. But that, that may not be God's plan. And parents, careful. Forbidding your kids to go and, and serve the Lord. I, I hear it all the time. Well, you know, they, they can go in ministry, but they need to get a degree in pre-med right now. You know, they maybe can serve that down the road. Or, oh, we're not having them go on a missions trip. They might get hooked. <laughs> That's what this obstacle is. The second one, isn't it? The distractions of life are, can so easily suck us in so that it, it's hard to follow. First John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride and riches come not from the Father, but from the world. And Jesus said, you want to follow me? Let, me? let me tell you these three obstacles, these things that need to be chiseled off, right? The, the first of these is the, the fears that come. Well, if I follow you, I, 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 you know, I don't, I'm not sure what I'm going to have, what that means. For others, it's the distractions of life. I, there's so much here, Lord, you know? And, and, and this guy seems so innocent to say, I, I want to bury my father. Yay for you. That's so nice. That's commendable. 
but what's he saying? And I need to hang around until he dies. Well, when's that? We don't know. And then when you do, the Jews had a one-year burial process. So you put the body in the tomb. A year later, you gather the bones and put it in a bone box. I, you're not interested in following the Lord. You're distracted. Think of Matthew. What did the tax collector do early in our study of Luke? He says he left everything. Talk about a lucrative business. And he said, no, it's, it's following the Lord. So there's the fear of abandonment and loneliness. There's the distractions of life. There's the, also the danger of forfeiting relationships. And this is the third obstacle. Notice what he says here in the text. Yet another one said, I will follow you, Lord. Here it is. This, I'll follow you. I'll do it. But first, let me say goodbye to my family. And Jesus' response of all the threes, this, this one even seems more callous and cold. He said, well, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. And you go, wait a minute. When Elisha wanted to, was called by Elijah to come and follow in the, the order of the prophets, what did Elijah say to, uh, Elisha say to Elijah? I need to go back and kiss my parents goodbye. And Elijah goes, go, go, go do that. That's great. And yet, Jesus, you're not even allowing that? Yes, because I'm greater than Elijah. Yes, it is far more significant what I'm asking you to do if you want to follow Jesus. And it's all the more urgent. There's no time for hesitation or delay. It's, I think, probably the hardest of the three obstacles that you would face in following the Lord would you not agree? <laughs> the fears, we can get over those. Get some counseling, we'll be fine. Distractions of life, all right, yep. Uh, the Lord has a way sometimes of removing us of our job or stripping our pocketbook, and that helps make some decisions. The third, though, my relationships, my family, my friends, what are you asking, Lord? Luke 8, then his mother and his brothers came to him. And they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother, your brothers are standing outside. They want to talk to you. But Jesus said to them, my brother and my mother are those who hear the word of God and they do it. Matthew 19, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. And then Luke 14, a text we'll get to, listen to this one. Whoever comes to me and does not hate, hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. The word hate there is one to love less or to renounce. In other words, what Jesus is stating, your first love needs to be me, not a parent not a child. That's huge. <laughs> I've met parents. The whole world revolves around the kid. That's why the, the parents end in divorce when the kids are out of the home because they can't function without the kid in the home. Jesus said, you, you want to follow me? This is radical. This isn't easy stuff. In fact, he says, you're not fit if you look back with the plow. And this is rocky terrain in Israel. That plow hits a rock and you're not paying attention. You're going to have a really crooked line. You know, teaching our kids how to mow the lawn. What do you do? 
You know, I don't want it to look like this in my yard, right? He said, look at the end. You're going straight to the end. Get your eye on whatever that is, that piece of brick, that stone, that tree. Mow straight. That's the idea. That's what Jesus is saying here. I mean, think about it. Throughout Scripture, men and women suffered what I call the one-eye-on-Sodom syndrome. <laughs> Lot's wife, she had one eye still on Sodom. Pillar of salt. Israelites are drawn back to the leaks of Egypt. Absalom looked to what he thought he should be, and Demas was enticed by the things of the world. We need individuals like Abraham who never looked back to Ur. Do you know the Ur? This, this is what, 2500 BC, I believe. Ur had running water. If you want to see some of the treasures of Ur, go to the art museum in Cincinnati. They have some of them where you can go to the Louvre. It, it's glorious. And, and listen to what the writer of Hebrews states. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out. He went without understanding where he was going. There was no map quest that was set forth. He wasn't told where he was going. Some say if he knew, he wouldn't have gone. <laughs> but he didn't know where he was headed. And it says, by faith he lived as foreigner, living in tents. I bet he had a great hacienda in Ur. They left it all to follow the Lord. One scholar states, following Jesus is not a task which is added to others like working a second job. It is everything. It is a solemn commitment which forces the disciples to be to reorder all their other duties. And so you have these three major obstacles. The first one is, oh, I'm coming, Lord. Uh, but wait, what did you say? The second one is, Lord, I'm coming, but I can't. And the third is, Lord, I'm coming, but not quite yet. The first failed to understand the terms of discipleship. The second two are trying to rewrite the terms of discipleship, aren't they? And Jesus said, you need to overcome these obstacles if you want to follow me. This is radical. We pray for a revival in our country, and we should, but it starts with us. Give me a group of believers who are this sold out to the Lord, we'll turn the world upside down. They did it in Acts. This is what we need in the church. The church is anemic. We're concerned about our country, and rightly so, but it starts in the church. It starts with us. The reasons to follow, it sounds like, whoo, this is really hard. But look at the three reasons why to follow that I've given you. There's only, there's more than three. But I've got three for you today, this morning. The first disease is the adequacy of Christ. It's where we find our peace. Romans 8, a glorious text, states, when, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his son gave him up for all of us. We will be, he, will he not with him also give us everything else? And then he states, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, things to come, nor powers, height, depth, or anything else in all creation, in case he missed anything, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our 
adequacy is found in Christ. Why? <clears throat> Let me give you some points. First of all, God is your sovereign protector. That's what Romans 8 is stating. He is committed to the grace that he's bestowed, both from that we have freedom from fear and the strength to fight. So one, he's our protector. Secondly, God is the great benefactor. He's constantly providing sufficiently and wisely. Third, the reason our adequacy can be found in Christ is that God is our mediator. He is securing your future at this very moment. And that leads us to the fourth, God is your keeper. He is the one showering loyal love upon you. And he is committed that you will not be condemned, but he will see you through. And so our adequacy is found in Christ alone. That is why you want to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow. Right? Is that the adequacy we find in him. This week, Tracy Pletcher uh, sent me uh, her testimony. She said, I just want to share what God has been doing in our lives. And after I <clears throat> wiped all my tears away, I said, uh, Tracy, uh, would you share this with the church? And she graciously said yes. So Tracy, I want you to hear her testimony of how our Lord is adequate in all things. Good morning, church family. As David said, I'm Tracy Pletcher, and my husband Nate is the guy running things back in the sound booth. Um, this morning, I just want to share with you how the Lord has been caring for us these past several weeks and how he's been using all of you to do so. Over the past couple of years, I've been learning the distinction between God's goodness and God's kindness. I suppose before now, I might have said they were one and the same. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. That's a familiar phrase for those of us in the church. Whether or not we always believe it or always feel it, we know God is good no matter our circumstances. His goodness is permanent, constant, unchangeable. But his kindness, I'm learning, that is something else entirely. In 2020, my family and I walked through hard circumstance after hard circumstance, a story I shared with you all last November. It's funny, the Lord keeps putting me in front of a microphone. It's about my least favorite place to be. Um, but after that difficult year, the Lord has brought peace and joy to our family in 2021. My brother walking with the Lord and back around family for the first time in over eight years, Nate working here at CBF full-time in a job he loves after a year of being in and out of unemployment, worshiping here with you all after a heartbreaking season of change, pregnant with baby number three and full of excitement for new life. But in mid-April, the circumstantial happiness started to crumble. My brother once again fled into sin. My mom was heading to Minnesota to help her parents through health struggles. And I found out alone in an ultrasound room that we would have to wait until heaven to meet our precious third child. A week and a half later, in the midst of recovery and grief, we found ourselves back in the hospital awaiting an appendectomy for Nate. The next day we were home, feeling again like it had all been a bad dream. These circumstances at times feel overwhelming, but in the midst of them, God is lavishing his kindness on us. After my miscarriage, people would just show up with food, flowers, cards, and encouragement, some of them I had never even met. A friend helped me clean my house, multiple friends watched our girls, we had a meal train set up during my recovery, and more and more. 
And then when I had to suddenly head to the ER with Nate, a friend dropped everything to come and watch our girls. Friends called to pray with us. Another brought me dinner and sat with us that night in the hospital. And the next day, the day of Nate's surgery, just listen to this. A friend brought my sister coffee and breakfast since she had stayed with my girls all night. Another friend brought me breakfast, coffee, and snacks at the hospital. Someone ordered groceries and flowers to be delivered to our house. Another friend sat with me while waiting through Nate's surgery and recovery. And when we pulled in from the hospital late that afternoon, Nate's sister was there to stay with us for a few days. Our yard was being mowed, and there was a hot meal and fresh flowers on our table. Who else but the Lord can mobilize that kind of an army in one day? In the coming days and weeks, we continued to receive meals, texts, and encouragement, gifts for the girls, groceries dropped off, and so much love and generosity I could never record it all. I have never felt the love of Christ so tangibly. He's been using his people to care for us and to hold our arms up when we have nothing left to give. In addition to the tangible blessings provided through all of you, I want to share another special gift the Lord gave me while I was waiting for Nate to come out of surgery. When they wheeled him in, he had tears running down his face, repeating over and over how grateful he was for everyone taking care of him. The next two hours would be some of the most sacred moments I've had with my Nate. While completely unaware of any of what he was saying, he went on and on about how much he loves Jesus and shared the desires in his heart. He told me over and over how grateful he is for me and how he loves me so much he doesn't know how to tell me. He thanked the Lord for our daughters and talked about how much he missed them. He wept for the child we lost. We wept together. But most importantly, he talked of his love for Jesus, how he wants to serve him, wants people to see Jesus in him, wants to make an impact for Jesus, wants our girls to follow Jesus, wants to see Jesus one day, wants Jesus to know how grateful he is for everything he's done for us, and I could go on and on. Getting to sit for two hours and hear what my husband longs for most was the biggest gift I never knew to ask or look for. While the clashing of these hard circumstances has left me with some questions for the Lord, they've never made me doubt his goodness, and they absolutely didn't change the fact that he is always good. God didn't have to do anything or provide for any of our needs to show me that he is good, but he did it all anyways because he is so incredibly kind. Sometimes we have to look a little harder to see his bountiful kindness and blessings all around us, but this time he's been so clear I haven't been able to ignore them. I'm sharing this with you all today because I want to thank him for his kindness publicly and because I am fickle. I forget so quickly and I don't want to. Please help me remember. Thank you, Jesus, for your overwhelming, incredible, undeserved kindness to us, and may I never forget and never stop thanking you for how you care for us. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Thank you, Tracy. So what do you say when you are sedated coming out of surgery? <laughs> I love Jesus. I can't wait to serve him more. Wow. This is the call. Adequacy in Christ. 
it's there. Secondly, the joy in Christ. That's, that's the meaning in life. Psalm 32, I will instruct and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with an eye upon you. Do not be like a horse, a mule without understanding, whose temper must be curbed with bit and bridle, else it will not stay near you. Many are the torments of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. You know, the irony is that all that these people are saying, I'm not sure I want to follow, all that the world can afford, owning a home, social responsibilities, or family, they will all disappoint at some point, at some time. I mean, think about a home, the joy of owning a home, right? The first two years, you've you got some cracks that you got to fill, the drywalling, the garage, or perhaps landscaping that's finally getting done. In five years, there's a need to paint, recarpet the house. By 10 years, you're replacing all the appliances and the hot water. In 20 years, while well, you're downsizing. You, you get the idea, right? Uh, these joys that we have, it's the joy in Christ. That's where the meaning's found. The third thing here is hope in in Christ. Tracy mentioned this. This is the direction in life. Ephesians 1 17. Paul says to the church at Ephesus, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for those of you who believe according to the working of his great power? At the end of the day, hope tied up with possessions, acceptance, or any relationship or any cultural influence will not deliver. All of these things will come to an end. The promises of this world, let's face it, they are short-lived, aren't they? Trusting in God's promise is not a wish that we hope that the Pacers would make the playoffs. It's not a dead-end street or some placebo to keep us happy. No, it's a faith-based confidence that God keeps his promises. That's why the writer of Hebrews 11, in that chapter of that hall of faith, he starts off by saying, now faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. There's these huge obstacles, aren't there, that lie, these landmines and wanting to follow the Lord. And they can easily sidetrack us into saying, nah, I'm not sure, Lord, I want you to chisel all this off. <laughs> you know, denying yourself, no, that's, that's compromise. Taking up a cross, maybe today, not tomorrow. <laughs> Follow you, well, mm. and the Lord is saying, no. If you're serious about following me, then all of these obstacles need to be eliminated. You need to follow hard after me. You need to seek first the kingdom. There's a quote at the bottom of your notes by Piper in a little book called Don't Waste Your Life. It's dynamite. If you've not read it, you should. He writes, we exist to make him, the Lord, appear in the world as what he really is, magnificent. That's what Tracy is stating. Life is hard. There's no doubt about that. But we serve a glorious God. 
I remember Howard Hendricks used to say to us as students, you know, if you want an effective ministry, it has a high price tag. But there's another clause that should be added, and that is, and it's worth every drop of sweat, every penny. <laughs> Piper goes on, if our life and our death do not show the worth and wonder of Jesus, they are wasted. That is why Paul said that his aim in life and death was that Christ be honored, that he be glorified, that we, we, we jump over these hurdles so that we can truly follow hard after the Lord. If you would, just bow your heads for a moment. We've been hit with a powerful testimony, the text, and the video. And I would dare say that there's some in this room that the commitment to the Lord is, has been waning. Perhaps you're a college student in your home, and it's, it's been a rough year spiritually for you. For some, you've been... helping feed those private sins, whether it's pornography, whether it's your anger, whether it's disrespect to a spouse or a child, perhaps it's just compromising at work, whatever the case may be. The Lord is calling for 100% commitment. This isn't a second job, as the one scholar states. And so perhaps this morning, the Lord has been moving in your life. Say, Pastor, would you pray for me? Just raise your hand. Say, I, I need prayer. I need to be sold out to the Lord, and I have been struggling big time. If that's you, just raise your hand so we can be praying for you. Yes. See that hand. Anyone else? Yes all over the room. Lord, it's so easy with the fear of abandonment and loneliness to say, mm, Lord, wait a minute, I'm not sure about that following you bit. Or perhaps it's, yeah, I'll follow, but let's rewrite the rule books because there's a lot in life that I'm enjoying or, or that have pulled me into or, uh, you know, I've got this relationship that if, if I do this, I, I, I could lose a, a parent, a sibling, a friend. And you're calling us to be sold out to you. Father, for those that have said, yeah, I, I need prayer. Lord, I just ask that you would work in their lives. Lord, work in all of our lives. Maybe we reminded, as John stated, your son, Christ, must increase. We must decrease. In Jesus' name, amen.